what is driving your actions initially is a combination of things. It is partially your commitment to that value. It is your commitment to this goal, but also it's the excitement and the fact that it feels easy to accomplish and doesn't require that much sacrifice or effort. And what we often fail to account for is that changing our behaviors is almost never just like a one-time process. In this episode, I'm bringing back Dr. Alex Korb to talk nerdy to me about the neuroscience of goal setting and goal achieving. In this conversation, we're diving into what's happening in our brains when we set goals, what gets in the way of actually achieving them, how to follow through when the initial burst of motivation fades, and how you can leverage neuroscience to set realistic goals that actually stick and that you are more equipped to follow through on. Dr. Alex Korb is a neuroscientist, coach, and best-selling author of The Upward Spiral. He has a PhD in neuroscience and is an adjunct assistant professor at UCLA. He was also my favorite professor at UCLA when I was a student there. He's the founder of the Upward Spiral Method, where he helps purpose-driven entrepreneurs and professionals conquer unnecessary thinking, stress, and self-doubt. Dr. Korb has a wealth of experience in yoga and mindfulness, physical fitness, and even stand-up comedy, which I think you'll see is pretty evident in this episode. Before we dive into this episode, we're going to take a little bit of time for a nerd alert. A few months ago, I interviewed Mona Anand about non-sleep deep relaxation and the practice of yoga nidra. To date, this has been one of the most popular episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me. If you are unfamiliar with the practice of yoga nidra, it's essentially a guided meditation technique that's practiced laying down. The goal of the practice is to teach your body how to fall asleep while your mind remains alert and attentive. In doing so, you help your brain shift into what is known as the hypnagogic state or this kind of twilight zone between being asleep and being awake. It's in this hypnagogic state, it's in this kind of in-between state that you'll have greater access to what is known as alpha, theta, and delta brainwave prominences and subsequently the subconscious and unconscious mind. Because you'll have access to these different brainwave prominences within yoga nidra, it makes it an incredibly potent practice for rewiring your subconscious and unconscious belief systems, pulling out old beliefs from the root, and planting new ones in their place. That's part of what makes this an incredibly powerful practice in manifestation and rewiring your brain to reflect the future self that you are stepping into. Whether you're someone who is actually interested in guiding and facilitating this practice or you not so selfishly want to learn more about this practice simply for your own self-understanding, you are more than welcome to join me online for a virtual Yoga Nidra facilitator training that begins on January 17th, 2024. To learn more and save your spot, you can click the link in the show notes or visit me over at alexnashton.com slash nidra training. That's alexnashton.com slash nidra training. Last but not least, if you've been listening to Talk Nerdy to me and have found this information to be helpful, I would love it if you could hit pause and leave this podcast a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. 
In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Now let's dive in and start talking nerdy. Welcome back to Talk Nerdy to Me, Dr. Alex Korb. You were the first interview that aired on this podcast and the second episode. Since then, your episode has been actually one of the most popular among listeners. So I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to come back on the podcast. And by the time that this episode is going to be airing, it'll be in that week between Christmas and New Year's Eve. So this is going to be the last episode of 2023. And I didn't think that there was anyone better to be talking to about New Year's resolutions, goal setting, and all of that stuff as we look forward to 2024. So thanks for coming on and talking with me. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's wonderful to hear and great to be back. I enjoyed our conversation last time and looking forward to talking some more. Amazing. So I personally love New Year's. I love New Year's resolutions. I love setting goals. I love making commitments, and for the most part, following through on the year ahead. But there are a lot of people that I know that absolutely detest this time of year and are really in opposition to setting any sort of goal. And my observation has been that there's a huge population of people that will set goals that are rooted in some form of self-animosity or self-criticism or self-judgment. I would love to begin there and just ask you if you can speak a little bit to why people set goals in the first place. What is an effective intention to be coming from or an effective place of motivation to be coming from and what actually gets in our way? Yeah, well, that's a huge question. It is definitely true that goals can be extremely effective in helping us accomplish things because they allow us to take advantage of the dopamine system, which evolved to motivate us to do things. And having a clear goal in mind helps us make progress. We get little dopamine boosts that move us along and we get a, another dopamine boost, we accomplish that goal. And so having clear, specific goals can be very motivating. And it can also help us deal better with the uncertainty of the world because our anxieties come from all this stuff that we can't control that might be important, but it's just uncertain and all over the place. And there's something comforting to just focus our attention on like, okay, well, I'm just going to make my bed every day. Like it's something I can control. It's something small I can focus on. And that can be really calming and reassuring. It's just that the same features and benefits of goals can also sometimes get in the way of what we really want or becoming the person we really want to be or who we uh, authentically are because of the pull that they have. So sometimes we set specific goals because we liked that feeling of achievement and like patting ourselves on the back and someone telling us, oh, that's a great goal you have. And like, we cheer ourselves along and we feel motivated, but like, is it the right goal in the first place? Are you just focusing on this 
one thing when really you'd be better served by focusing on something else. But because you've created this goal, now you've engaged your dopamine system and you're more focused on it. You pay more attention to it, potentially at the detriment of all these other things that you could be doing. Like you're so focused on keeping a clean house. You're like, okay, every day I'm going to clean up for five minutes today. And you're like, okay, I got a streak going. I got seven days in a row. I can't stop now. I have a goal. But then it might get in the way of you paying attention to things that are actually more important to you. But now you can't be as flexible easily because I set this goal. And if I don't follow through with my goals and I'm a bad person and like, then that, you know, creates all these other issues. Another problem is that because goals are sort of controllable, they help us keep us calm about all of these other terrible things in life that we don't necessarily have control over, then we can almost use goals as like a safety net to try to avoid anxiety, but that doesn't make the anxiety go away. Avoiding anxiety actually reinforces in the brain that this thing is fearful and bad and it's bad that you can't control it and thinking about it is bad and feeling this way is bad and therefore you should avoid it. Okay, okay, I'm just going to focus on tidying up my house. I'm going to just you know make healthy lunches or I'm going to exercise or whatever. And it does temporarily manage that anxiety, but the only way to actually defeat that anxiety or to eliminate it is to face it. And if you have this habit of always just creating goals and like, oh, I'm a goal-oriented person, you tell yourself that it's a good thing that you're creating goals, but it might actually be reinforcing the anxiety and you just keep setting goals in order to avoid actually dealing with the anxiety. It can be an avoidance mechanism in that way. And I think if we were to take it all the way over to the extreme end of the pendulum, you know, this is where OCD can really spiral out of control. It's like, well, I can't handle the discomfort that I feel or the anxiety that I feel about this, but I can wash my hands, but I can ruminate. Yeah. In an OCD, it is, you know, spectrum, but like the brain is similar for everyone. It's just, oh, it's extreme in this way in OCD and it's, you know, not as much of a choice, but the same motifs happen in everyone's life to some extent. And I actually, I think another great example is phobias. Like you have a specific phobia, like claustrophobia, and you come to the elevator and you're like, I don't, feel comfortable getting in. I'm going to die. I'm going to just go, oh, I can take the stairs. I'll just take the stairs. Oh, that's good for me. I get some exercise. Like, oh, it'll help me accomplish some goal. And so we can tell ourselves, I'm not avoiding the elevator. I'm just taking the stairs to get some exercise. It's just, you know, more uncomfortable. It's more comfortable that way. And, I, and it also helps me accomplish these goals. And then, you know, you get to the where you're going and you didn't die. And your brain's like, oh, that's a win. And so then it reinforces that, oh, that thought I had, that like, oh, I shouldn't get on the elevator to take the stairs. Oh, that was a good thought. I'm glad I listened to that anxiety because then I didn't die. And the more that you listen to that anxiety, you start even be, stop even becoming aware of the anxiety. You're saying, no, I'm not avoiding this thing at all. I'm just, I'm just getting exercise. And 
it's it's insidious because every time you take the stairs, the true reason is because you're avoiding the elevator and it reinforces that the elevator is something to be scared of. But the only way to eliminate that anxiety is to actually take the elevator and not to be forced to take it, but to make a choice to realize like, oh, I don't want my life to be controlled by the anxiety. If I'm taking the stairs exercise, I want it to be because I'm choosing to do that intentionally, not because it's being chosen for me subconsciously by this routine that's been programmed into my brain. Absolutely. That makes so much sense. The episode that is coming out right before this one is all about codependency because Christmas time and lots of family time and like everything that you're saying, it just reminds me so much of codependent relationships where, you know, when we are consistently behaving in what we would deem as being altruistic ways in an attempt to try to mitigate the emotional experience of another person, we're not actually doing either one of us a favor because at the end of the day, we don't have control over the other person anyway. And when we do that, it's an attempt to soothe our own discomfort at watching someone else be in discomfort. And then we're enabling them to just keep doing whatever it is that they've been doing that's causing them distress. And yeah, it just seems like there are so many through lines here. Yeah. I mean, this is where New Year's resolutions can become problematic in your relationship to yourself because we have relationships with other people in a similar way that we have relationships to ourselves because the same brain regions are often involved. And like my ability to understand, well, what is it that you're thinking and what motivates your behavior utilizes the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the same region you use to understand yourself. You're like, huh, I wonder why I did that. And like reflect on your own thing. And so, you know, your own motivations. And so oftentimes the issue is our relationship to ourselves that we need to change because that's what's getting in the way. And New Year's resolutions present a problem because that relationship can be one of self-criticism where I'm like, I'm so lame. Look at all the terrible things I did this year, all the how lazy I was or all the things I didn't accomplish that I said I would. Like, I'm going to be a better person and I'm going to get this, you know, person that I am right now to like do all these things and promise. And like, it is driven from a desire to like stop being such a terrible person and we think that somehow setting this goal will change the kind of person you are but you can't fundamentally change the kind of person you are but setting these goals sometimes creates the illusion that oh, it be this amazing person instead of recognizing like oh you're you're perfectly fine the way that you are and you can love yourself and be perfectly happy with the kind of person that you are. That doesn't mean you can't also change things and set goals. But when we set goals based on that we are choosing for as opposed to running away from, then often it is easier to stick with those goals and those goals are much more satisfying because if we're say just choosing a goal to avoid our own self-criticism 
Like, I'm going to write a book in 2024. I'm going to write uh, one chapter a month. And if I don't, it's because I'm lazy and I'm a terrible person. I was a lazy you know, writer and I didn't live my dreams in 2023, so I'm going to do it. So yeah, that might potentially get you to write a book. There are other pitfalls where you're stressing yourself out unnecessarily and might overwhelm your own ability to follow through, but that's a separate thing. But it might be enough to get you to follow through on that. But at the end of the year, you're not necessarily going to feel oh, this elation and satisfaction of what you accomplished, you're probably going to feel a sense of relief that, oh, I managed to trick myself for a whole year and like, I, I am still a terrible person, but I was able to, you know, do these goals as opposed to choosing, like, hey, you know what? I was really excited about writing a book. I'm really disappointed that I wasn't able to do it previously. Oh, let me just you know, adjust some of these habits here. Let me figure out how I could do these actions more consistently and be clear about why I'm writing a book and how exciting that would be and how meaningful it would be to me so that when it's difficult, I don't need to automatically relate to myself of like, stop whining, you little baby. I can be like, oh yeah, I know it's difficult. If there was an easier way to express myself or to reach and help the people I'm trying to help. I, I do that. Oh, there isn't. Okay. So that's why I'm going to write this book. Not because it's easy, not to torture myself for no reason, but because, oh, it's really meaningful and important to go where this is leading me. And so I'm choosing to go there. And it is much easier to experience positive emotions and sense of fulfillment when we're doing it in that way, as opposed to running away from our own negative emotions. And the irony is that the things that we feel like we quote unquote have to do to avoid negative consequences of our own self-criticism or other people's judgment or whatever it is, and the things that we quote unquote want to do because they're taking us somewhere important or meaningful or joyful, they're often the exact same things. In this case, you know, sitting down and writing a book. It's just that the more that we focus on how we have to do it and the negative consequences and our lack of control, the harder it is to do and the less enjoyable it is. And the more that we focus on our choice in the matter and doing it intentionally for important reasons, the easier it is to stick with and get joy from. That makes so much sense. So step one to creating goals and resolutions that actually stick would be to focus on what it is that you want to create rather than what it is that you want to fix in yourself or prove or. Yeah, I would actually state it slightly differently because part of it is, yes, what is it that's important to you that you want to move towards? But the first step is recognizing that who you are right now is pretty good, probably great, and appreciating your yourself as you are right now. There's a lot of research on self-affirmation that we often go about habit change the wrong way. We try to criticize ourselves into changing habits. We focus on our bad habits and how bad they are for me, and I need to stop doing that. And instead, if you start with, okay, let's instead of 
thinking about how all I am is a collection of bad habits, let's start with the basic assumption that I'm a good, competent person. And to help me remind me of that, I'm going to think about what are all the good qualities that I have? What would people say are good things about me? What do I like about myself? What are all the aspects of my character that I wouldn't want to change? And then all of a sudden we start to see like, oh, well, I like most of myself. It's just this little piece of me here that has to do with my discipline about writing or like how much alcohol I drink. It's just like these little pieces over here that I don't like. But when you start with the view that you are broken and need to change, it's actually much harder to change than when you start with the assumption that, no, you're generally great. It's just, oh, I don't like these pieces. They are smaller, become much more manageable. And then changing is a choice as opposed to, I'm broken, I have to change. And once we start from there, then the next step is like, oh, well, what's some positive vision? I changed this habit. Like, what would that allow for me? What would that create in the future? Is that something that's super exciting and important to me? Oh, if so, then I don't have to change my habits around writing or I don't have to change my drinking habits. I want to get to this awesome place to be that even better version of myself. And again, not because I have to be this better version of myself, but because I want to be this better version of myself. And then we can ask, oh, is there some easier way to get to this awesome place I want to go that doesn't involve me being more disciplined about writing or you know drinking less or whatever it is? If so, feel free to do it. You don't need take the harder way just for itself but then we can realize like, oh there's not been another way oh okay well it's worth it to me to get there so like i know why i'm going through this difficulty i'm not just doing it to torture myself or because i'm a bad person i'm doing it because it's the only way to get to the place that's truly important absolutely i think that brings up a really important point which is that a lot of what motivates us in general is either coming from pain or it's coming from pleasure. Running away from pain, avoiding discomfort or pursuing something that's more pleasurable and enjoyable. And it seems like based on everything that you're sharing, the mindset that we're in when we're pursuing fulfillment, when we're pursuing something better, but coming from a place of self-acceptance initially is just a much more graceful and easeful trajectory than trying to drag ourselves through our self-criticism and our shame and our judgment. So that makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to the dopamine system for a moment here and talk a little bit more about that because you kind of touched on it in the beginning, but I would love to slow down and talk about the experience of setting a goal. That evokes a release of dopamine. And then when we achieve said goal, that also gives us a little hit of dopamine. And that can act as positive reinforcement because it's very rewarding when we get a hit of dopamine for achieving said goal. Yeah, we release dopamine in a variety of ways as as it relates to goals. One of the, the best ways to think about it is like a progress bar. 
when you're filling out a form online. They're like, congratulations, you're 14% of the way through, or you've completed page one of seven. The moment you start filling it out and you see your progress bar, oh, I'm like 25% of the way through. Like you get a little bit of a burst of dopamine because you've made progress towards some concrete goal. You can say, oh, I've already made progress. The reasons why companies show you that is because they know like you're more likely to fill out the form when you know I'm 25% because of that dopamine, because that little boost of dopamine motivates you to keep taking action to move towards that goal. Because as each step you take, you release more dopamine in anticipation of completing that big goal and getting another big burst. One of the key things to recognize about the dopamine system that's really helpful for taking action, that's not the same thing as experiencing fulfillment. And sometimes we take action towards concrete goals just because like we packed our dopamine system to do that, but that's not necessarily taking this in the direction that's most valued and most fulfilling. But that is an important thing to recognize that how the dopamine system works. And so you can't take advantage of it if you don't have concrete goals because it's very concrete. It's not abstract. So one of my favorite simple experiments that they, they did with rat and like depleted their serotonin system, which is crucially important in abstract rewards and like imagining things in the future, like the marshmallow tests. I don't know. We, we don't have to go into all that, but just being able to like motivate our behavior based on some abstract idea um, that requires serotonin. But they took these rats and said, okay, you can either have these two food pellets right here, or you can climb over a fence and get four food pellets. And crucially, they could see the four food pellets. And so if they didn't have a fully functioning serotonin system, so their willpower was disrupted, they would still climb over the fence to get the four food pellets because they could see clearly the concrete rewards. And each step they took towards the food pellets, they could see their progress. They climb the fence, they, they would get more reward for those four food pellets. And so if you can make your goals very concrete so you know exactly what steps you need to take and each step you take you can see how that moves you towards the bigger goal and that helps you take advantage of that dopamine system but there are two main ways that that fails people one is they don't take time to just think about their dreams like they jump so quickly to the practicality of like, okay, but how am I going to do this or whatever that they forget to like, yeah, but what is important to me? Like forget about what's easiest or the most practical. Like what's my dream? What are my values? What is most important to me? Once you have that, then you can set a goal that will move you towards those dreams. And that's the other piece where people get in their own way is that they just focus on dreams and then they're frustrated like why aren't I making progress towards my dreams well because you didn't take your dream and like break it down into a specific actionable goal and then break that goal smaller down into a you know more immediate goal so like oh, I have a dream of becoming a famous author oh that's an amazing dream awesome 
okay, so what's one specific goal that you could do to move towards that? Oh, I'm going to write a book by the end of the year. Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, you can't just sit down and write a book. You need to break that down further into actionable steps. Like, okay, every day I'm going to sit down for an hour and write. And if I sit down for an hour and write, I've accomplished that goal. And so every day I can just give myself a check mark. I accomplished that goal. And each day a little burst of dopamine, I did that, moving me towards my bigger goal of writing the book, which is reaffirming my value of you know, creative expression and so on. As long as I'm being honest with myself, which is hard to do, about what those bigger values and dreams are and what my limitations are, then it's easy to set goals and feel fulfilled by them. Amazing. So say hypothetically, somebody has done this. They have the big vision. They want to be the author. They're breaking it down into actionable steps. And for the first two to three weeks of January 2024, (laughs) they're doing it. Like every day they're carving out time to write and feeling really good about it. And then they miss a day and then they miss two days. And then maybe they write again on the third day, but the fourth day, and then it slowly tapers off. When I was teaching yoga in Los Angeles, this is something we would see every single year. The first two to three weeks of January, the classes were packed, like filled to the brim. And then all the familiar faces would start to taper off and we would stop seeing people. So I'm curious what's happening there, because if we're continuously getting this reinforcement of dopamine, then wouldn't it keep us hooked, right? Because dopamine can be so addictive. Like, wouldn't it keep us hooked to just keep going? Yeah. So one thing I suppose I should address before I fully answer the question is, it is true that setting resolutions makes it more likely that you will follow through on the action. Because I feel like we started talking about some of the negatives and the drawbacks, but it's true, like saying, hey, I'm going to commit to this does make it more likely that you will follow through. One of the problems with New Year's resolutions, though, is like, if it was really that important and you were really committed, like, why did you have this idea in October? Then you're like, okay, but I'm not going to actually do it until New Year's. So that sort of calls into question, like, well, what was your motivation behind it initially? But let's say, okay, you're, you, you set a goal, I'm going to go to yoga three times a week. What is driving your actions initially is a combination of things. It is partially your commitment to that value, potentially. It is your commitment to this goal, but also it's the excitement and the fact that it feels easy to accomplish and doesn't require that much sacrifice or effort. And what we often fail to account for is that changing our behaviors is almost never just like a one-time process. Like, oh, I'm going to stop smoking. Like, oh, I'm going to start journaling every day. Changing your behaviors is much more like learning a new skill, like shooting a basketball, like making free throws. We don't say, hey, you know what? I'm going to make every free throw. Oh, I know what to do with my hand. Now I'm just going to make every free throw that I shoot from now on. No, it takes practice, but we somehow think that like, oh, why well, I understand what I would need to do to go to yoga every day, but we don't realize that like 
oh, this is a habit that needs to be retrained. And so it is easy or easier to override our habits. Like you have a habit of not going to yoga. Rather, you have a habit of doing lots of other things other than going to yoga. But you can override that habit for the first few weeks because of your excitement, because of the newness of it. And you can remind yourself, hey, it's January. I can still remember easily that promise I made to myself. I can still remember how I felt about it. And so I can override that habit. But we're always going to have setbacks or mistakes or things that come up because it's not actually wired into your brain yet as a habit. It is still this action that you're overriding your habit system to get you to take. And even if it was a habit, stuff would still come up. Your kids would get sick or whatever. But if it was already wired as a habit, then stuff would come up and you'd be like, oh, whatever. And then oh, then you'd fall back into your habit. But I think people think that creating that habit will be easier than it is. And so they do it for two or three weeks and then something inevitably comes up as it always does. And instead of saying, okay, let me go back. I couldn't do it yesterday and I'm, I'm going to stop focusing on the fact that I can't go back in time and do yoga yesterday, but I can go to yoga today. Therefore, they use the fact that they were perfect about this action already as a reason to give up. And in a lot of times it calls into question, like, well, what were you actually committing to in the first place? Like, what were you resolving to do? And so when people, and, and this is, I think is, is crucially important for setting good resolutions, because I think sometimes people make a resolution like, I'm going to go to yoga three times a week every every week this year. And that's going to be, oh, it's so amazing. They, they think about how amazing they're going to look and, uh, and feel. And many of those things are probably things that actually are truly important to them. But it, it also covers up this perfectionist tendency, I think, that a lot of us have. Yeah, I'm going to do it as long as they can be perfect at it. And if I can't be perfect at it, screw it. I don't want to do it. And we just have to get over ourselves. And we don't realize that we're also resolving to be perfect, which is not something that you have control over. In fact, I can guarantee that you can't be perfect. Like even, to go back to the basketball analogy, like even the best basketball players in the world They've practiced for tens of thousands of hours. They're the most supreme athletes on the planet. They don't make every free throw, you know, they attempt. But the difference is when, you know, LeBron James or Steph Curry misses a free throw, they're not like, oh my God, so many people are watching me. They're not like, oh my God, I've wasted all those hours. They're just like, okay, but I bend my knees and I do. And they just go back to, what they were focusing on before. They don't read something into it. And if you have perfectionist tendencies, we often overemphasize the importance or relevance of the fact that I wasn't perfect. And then that uh, stresses us out and stress 
pushes us back into our deepest, most ingrained habits. And because your yoga isn't a habit yet, it's going to push you back into whatever you were doing before. And then you're more stressed and you're worried about, well, I'm not going to be able to be perfect about this. And that if you are trying to commit to something that you don't actually have control over, that demotivates you as opposed to making a commitment like, hey, I'm going to commit to the parts of this that I actually have control over. If stuff comes up or if I forget, it's okay. It's in the past. I can't control it. Okay, I'm going to do it now. And each time you make that choice to reaffirm throughout the year, now I'm reaffirming my commitment. That is how we create the pattern for the long term as opposed to just, oh, try to make that commitment once and hope I'm perfect the whole time. Absolutely. When I'm talking to somebody, having a coaching conversation before actually making the commitment to work together in a longer term capacity, one of the biggest fears that comes up that I've noticed is that people have a fear of not being able to follow through on their commitments. Because look at this overwhelming body of evidence from my lifetime that I'm somebody who doesn't follow through. And that creates just this self-perpetuating cycle of never committing to anything in the first place because then we get further affirmation and proof that we're not somebody who has enough integrity to follow through on their commitments. And it just goes on and on and on. It's never ending. So I, I loved what you said about what is the deeper resolution? You know, is it a resolution to be perfect? But also you're unconsciously making this resolution to be perfect, even though you think you're making a resolution over here. You're unconsciously making that resolution to be perfect because you're starting from a fundamental belief or fear that your lack of being perfect makes you not a worthy person or whatever. And so we're trying to make up for it with our resolutions as opposed to starting with the assumption like I you know, may have not honored all my commitments in the past, but like I'm generally a trustworthy person. I'm a good person. I'm an honest person. Like you start with your belief in your inherent value, it makes it much easier and less stressful to make those commitments. Absolutely. I want to start to close down the episode just by sharing that before we hopped on, I did a quick little bit of research on Google, Guru Google, as to what the definition of a resolution even was, because I was under the impression that it came from the word resolve. Like there's a problem that needs to be resolved. There's a problem that needs to be fixed. And it doesn't. It comes from the word resolute, which basically is just a commitment. It's a quality of being determined. It's a choice to do something or not do something. And I think that's so on theme with everything that we've talked about today is that it's just a, a choice and it doesn't have to come from this place of believing that we're inherently broken and in need of being fixed. So I so appreciate you taking the time to share this with me and with listeners today. If there was one final word of wisdom or action step that you would recommend for listeners in creating their resolutions for this next year, is there anything that we haven't touched on yet that you would like to share? Well, I guess it is really just to expand on what you were you were saying and you noticed in your own calls with potential clients about like they have this conflict or like reaction to the word commitment or the thought of commitment. 
And so I think some reframing or rethinking around that is helpful because I've noticed that my own clients as well, when I'm talking to potential clients, many of whom, by the way, have listened to this podcast. I wasn't surprised. Um, I've had two clients in the last few months. They're like, oh, I, I heard you on Alex Nash's podcast. When I ask people about like how committed they are to themselves or this vision of themselves, they get stressed and they, you know, they hem and haw. And I want to clarify that the word commitment just has a lot of weight with a lot of people because we have these perfectionistic tendencies and we believe that if you make mistakes, it's bad. But it's helpful to recognize that a commitment is just a choice, as you say. It's an idea. It is a promise or a pledge. It's this abstract concept, which is controlled by different parts of the brain and it's a different thing than how you feel about that choice or that commitment so the the idea and how you feel about the idea are separate things and the actions that we take as a result of that commitment or those feelings is also different and controlled by a different part of the brain but oftentimes we look at our past actions and we say oh i guess I must not be that committed to my own health because I said I was going to do it, but I didn't do it. So I guess I'm not that, it must not be that important to me. And we mix up those two things and then we, our past becomes our future uh, or we, we are really committed to something, you know, it is really important to us in some deep, meaningful way. And because things that are important to us that are potentially out of our control or have elements that are out of our control, those create feeling. That's just how the limbic system in the brain works. And so we have a lot of fear about will we be able to do it? And a lot of that fear is focused on the parts of it that we can't control. What if I, what if my kid gets sick? What if I forget? And that fear is elevated by our own perfectionism and our own self-criticism. That if I'm not perfect, that's bad. And again, that's amplified by our starting from the place that I, I need to prove that I'm worthy instead of just believing that I am. And so just recognizing that those pieces are separate. The idea or the choice is separate from the feelings, is separate from the actions, is so freeing. And I can choose to commit to things that are important to me that I actually have control over because otherwise I'm stressing myself out unnecessarily. And that really is the essence of the coaching I realized that I end up doing. It's just like, okay, being clear, what's important to you, what you have control over. And then that takes out so much unnecessary anxiety and self-doubt because you can focus all of your efforts and energy on the things that are important to you that you actually have control over. But until you get that clarity, then you'll constantly be distracted by things that are unimportant or uncontrollable or both. And while that, that framework is really powerful, it's easier said than done because it's so easy to lie to yourself based on your unhelpful beliefs that have 
actually helped you succeed in a lot of ways, even though they're kind of getting in the way of further success and happiness or habits that have helped you to get where you are now, but are preventing you from moving forward. That's one of the reasons why it's so important to experiment and try different things. And also so important to ask for help from experts or from someone else who's not you, who can help you see your own blind spots. But yeah, just recognizing that your, your ideas, your feelings and your actions are different things. And that frees you up to be the person who makes a choice and live your life intentionally. Absolutely. If someone wanted to work with you, what is the best place for them to get in touch and reach out? Yeah, they can connect with me on uh, Instagram at alexcorbphd uh, or my website, alexcorbphd.com. I have a lot of helpful resources there. I have a, a free guide on conquering overthinking and I have a, an email list that I've sent out lots of helpful resources and tips and guidance. And so they can get on that either through my Instagram bio or alexcorbphd.com. Amazing. And I'll include links to all of those in the show notes. I'm also putting together a required reading list for Talk Nerdy to Me. And your book, The Upward Spiral, is on it for sure. <laughs> so if you haven't yet had the chance to read Dr. Korb's book, highly, highly recommend it. And thank you again so, so much, Dr. Korb, for coming on and talking nerdy to me and closing out the first year of this podcast with me. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to be here. And before you go, just one quick super nerdy announcement, which is that my annual Neuroscience of Manifestation Masterclass is happening online Friday, January 12th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is my signature workshop that I've led every single year for the last five years, and it's only $22. If you want to learn more or save your spot, head to the link in the show notes and you can learn more there. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.